Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi everyone and welcome to the what I believe is the sixth round of our Islamic book reviews uh, with myself Usama Al-Azami and uh, my colleague Omar Anshasi um, and this week Omar will be talking about uh, a book by Sean Anthony uh, Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam and the empires of faith that uh, oh, the salawat the is my own interpolation, of course, about <laughs> the, making, the making of the Prophet of Islam, sallallahu alayhi wa And uh, the usual format um, will be Omar speaking about it for about 10 to 15 minutes. Then I will try to engage in conversation. <coughs> Some of you may notice that I'm struggling a little with my breath. And I, alhamdulillah, have received a negative COVID test uh, recently. But uh, I do have a bit of a cough. So please bear with me. Um, I may be relying a good deal on Omar this week. Please feel free to ask questions. Um, those will com come up in the comments and we'll try and deal with them in the last 15 minutes or so of the um, sort of broadcast. And uh, we always welcome questions, comments, feedback. And if you'd like to you know, join us regularly, please feel free to like, subscribe, or um, sort of follow, depending on the platform that you're using. We're on YouTube, uh, Twitter, Facebook, all three. And so we look forward to uh, hearing from you, but um, until then, uh, Omar, please take it away, inshallah. Sure. Uh, so this book by Sean Anthony was published or came out, I believe, around April of uh, 2020. It's published by the University of California Press. And it is uh, a kind of post-revisionist work on the... Uh, Sira Maghazi corpus, so exploring uh, this literature uh, on the Prophet and his life and his deeds, and in particular looks at how historians can read this corpus of literature uh, against uh, the background of uh, late antiquity, so laterally alongside uh, other late antique sources, and uh, it explores in a number of uh, detailed case studies how exactly this can be done in order to sift and scour the uh, historical elements of this corpus um, and so on. And there's also a valuable discussion in the book of the origins of the Sira Maghazi corpus, Sira Maghazi, Sira being the kind of exemplary life of the prophet, uh, Maghazi being a references, uh, reference to his campaigns and battles. I mean, these terms are used somewhat interchangeably sometimes uh, the term Maghazi is used to refer exclusively to the more well-attested Medinan uh, half of his career, if you like. And uh, so there's a valuable account of the origins of this corpus and in particular uh, the impetus behind its commitment to writing. Uh, as we know, uh, it took some time for public book, uh, books in the sense that we would understand the term to emerge after the Qur'an. And it's really a phenomenon that uh, even according to the Muslim tradition itself, if, if you look at uh, the Qutb al-Qulub of Abu Talib al-Makki, he says the first books to be written, of course, after the Qur'an were written in 120, and I've seen 150 also claimed as a first day. There's many reasons for this, um, not, not least constraints on, on the technology of writing. Uh, and he explores how uh, the caliphal courts Firstly, uh, the Umayyads, uh, beginning really during the reign of Abdul Malik bin Marwan and his uh, uh, son Hussein bin Abdul Malik, uh, 
and uh, and he explores various uh, claims of when did this project first uh, what was it first launched but the key the key factor is the actual systematic attempt to write uh, the or to commit to paper the Sira Maghazi corpus was really inspired uh, by the caliphal court, although that's not to suggest they controlled the narrative or anything like this, but the impetus for writing is, is located squarely in that context. So to give you a sense of the structure of the book, it, it's a tripartite in structure, and uh, the first and the last section are comprised of two chapters each, and each of those chapters is a detailed case study uh, which involves reading the Sira Maghazi corpus against its late antique background. So reading lots of late antique texts in uh, languages like Syriac uh, and so on uh, to help read and sift the Sira uh, Maghazi corpus for its to weed out the non-historical elements and so on. And then the, the kind of middle uh, section of the book uh, explores uh, the role of the caliphal court in instigating this project of committing the Sira Maghazi corpus to writing. And uh, also, he actually translates uh, the letters uh, sent by Urwa ibn Zubair, an immensely important uh, early uh, author, you could say author compiler. On, he didn't write public books, but he uh, sent letters to the caliph Abdul Malik, uh, sorry, to Abdul Malik bin Marwan, that uh, and, uh, Sean Anthony seems to accept as basically historical. I mean, sometimes he hedges his bets and says, you know, I, I have few doubts about these. But uh, anyway, this represents really one of the earliest, uh, certainly accessible to us, strata of the Sira Marazi corpus. Uh, you know, we have uh, letters, uh, in other words, from uh, the decades after the Prophet's life, I mean, you're talking, you know, circa 70 uh, after the after the Hijran and so on. Uh, and he, he also focuses on, on the role of, in particular, although he discusses all the kind of different textual variants and does a remarkable job, I think, of tracing variant accounts and all of this really um, profound uh, in, in terms of the the breadth of research, the depth of research involved here, uh, but he also discusses at some length the careers of two uh, major figures associated with the early uh, project of uh, committing the Sira Maghazi corpus to writing. Ibn Shahab al-Zuhri, who died in 124, the famous Tabi, who was a major node of transmission uh, of hadith and, and other material, and uh, his uh, Ibn Ishaq, who is of course famous for his Sira. Uh, dies 150 after the Hijrah. And it's it's kind of through the lens of Ibn Ishaq that uh, subsequent authors, and certainly for us today reading various works of Sirah, uh, you know, the framework established by Ibn Ishaq, the chronology, is really the lens through which uh, subsequent authors uh, view this, this kind of corpus of tradition, view the basic outline of the biography uh, of the Prophet, Um so you have basically four detailed case studies in the first and last sections of the book, and then in the middle, this valuable uh, discussion uh, of uh, why exactly and when, and what, what were the impetuses and so on for the, to commit uh, this uh, genre of writing really to, to paper for the first time. So that hopefully gives you a broad sense of the overview of the work to give you a sense of uh, 
the methodological place where it's coming from. Uh, Anthony, uh, Sean Anthony is, uh, is quite optimistic in this work. He says, uh, and, and you can consider it a, a kind of post-revisionist statement of uh, where we are today in Sira Maghazi studies. So he says there are really four sources for understanding the Prophet's life and career. Uh, and three of these are uh, you know, very well established and early. And of course, they do pose challenges of interpretation as well, and sometimes of transmission. Uh, so three sources, uh, the Quran, which I think is now universally accepted, almost at least, even by the most skeptical of scholars as an authentic record of the Prophet's teaching, uh, especially because of in the last two decades paleographic uh, or developments in, in, in paleography. Uh, so discovery of very, very early uh, manuscripts of the Quran, Quranic text fragments, normally not, not the whole uh, text, of course, and also uh, even more work now on, on the, the style of the Quran and its internal features that supports uh, this very early dating, effectively affirming the, 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 the canonization or the, the codification of the Quran in the decades uh, right after the Prophet's passing. Uh, and in addition, uh, you have, of course, the early test uh, testimonies of non-Muslim sources preserved in languages such as Syriac, Greek, and Armenian, and so on. Uh, and uh, finally, you have documentary and epigraphic, numismatic, and other kinds of material sources, you know, everything from coins to uh, one area that's enjoyed a real boom in the last few years is the study of epigraphy. So, you know, people scratching out their names on, uh, on, on rock, <laughs> effectively. And uh, one thing I, I really enjoy and value about the book is uh, not only does he bring you up to date, and because this is a fast-moving field and there are new developments and the literature is scattered far and wide, it really brings all of these developments into one place. So it's a nice way of bringing yourself up to date with the research on this subject. Uh, but also he's made quite extensive use of uh, modern Arabic research, especially when it comes to fields like epigraphy. So uh, it could be that a, an important and very early um, uh, inscription on rock, for instance, and some of this stuff really is remarkably early. You're talking the, the early 20s of the Hijra, for instance, hmm. or after the Hijra. Uh, you know, and it gets published in uh, some Saudi archaeology journal. I mean, it, it takes a great amount of effort to stay on top of that and be aware of it. So that, that's uh, that's a really good um, development, I, I think, in scholarship, uh, taking on board the contributions, not just of uh, people who edit texts and publish them, but uh, even uh, contemporary scholarship in the form of journal publications. So, and of course, uh, this is something I, I didn't really talk about in Ahmed Shamsi's book, but he also makes extensive use of, of modern Arabic scholarship. So this is a very uh, positive development, I'd say. And uh, so that's the Quran, uh, various material forms of sources and non-Muslim testimony. And then fourthly and finally, the Sira Maghazi corpus itself, which requires a certain amount of sifting and scouring and interpretation in order to properly understand and contextualize. Uh, but the broader, I suppose, conclusion of the book uh, and, and, and the note on which it ends is, is really one of optimism uh, based on, uh, well, 
not least not not least the uh, four case studies, which are almost like detective detective stories, if you like, that Anthony presents in the book. Uh, he concludes that well, if we take this Sira Mahazi corpus with its limitations and sift it carefully, and I mean, there's a fair amount of Isnad analysis in the book. He uh, draws on the Isnad Kumetan uh, method of Motsky and also used by Sola and my Edinburgh colleague, uh, Andreas Gurka, among others, which seems to enjoy now broad acceptance, although it still has critics here and there. Um, and he says that if we bear all of these things in mind, and most crucially, not limit ourselves to a reading of the corpus itself, to broaden out uh, our reading uh, to include uh, the sources of late antiquity in their various languages, uh, particularly Syriac and Greek and so on, then that can really enrich our picture of the Sira. And uh, yes, the, overall the method still has limitations. So, uh, you know, in order for Isnad Kometan analysis to work, you know, you need many, many Isnads and variant versions. Uh, and it, it can tell us what was in circulation in the 60s after Hijra, for instance, but, you know, you cannot push things all the way back into the life of the Prophet. I, I, I mean, it's a function of the different methodological uh, assumptions we set out with, of course, yeah. uh, but nonetheless, it is valuable. And, and uh, Anthony says it, it allows us to move in some cases with careful research uh, from a low resolution to a what he calls a more uh, high resolution image uh, of uh, of the the early at least strands of the Sira Mughazi corpus so hopefully that gives uh, viewers a broad sense of what the book is doing and uh, some of the the questions it entertains and methodological interventions uh, he's making and it's it's a, it's a beautifully written uh, and i should say in particular the the translations of the uh, letters of Arwa ibn Zubair because Sean Anthony has actually translated uh, the Maghazi uh, of Ma'amar bin, bin Rasid and it's preserved at Musallaf Abdul Razak. And these are very difficult texts full of archaisms and uh, difficult language. And it's uh, it's very, very readable. Right. Uh, so yeah, I, I commend this this book to viewers and hopefully this is this is a fair summary. Thank you very much, Alan. I mean, that's really, um, I think, You've you've done sort of uh, a wonderful job in giving us an idea of uh, Sean's contribution in particular, and also in a sense the range of different methods being applied, the way in which um, he's offered a very useful synthesis of a lot of these methods, um, and in a sense uh, provided us a kind of um, an overview of <coughs> what's available at the moment in the secondary literature. So I look mm. forward to um, <coughs> maybe examining the footnotes a little at some point when I get the time to get back into uh, early Islamic history studies. I actually, I mean, on a personal note, this was one of the areas that um, interested me. It, I think it was quite popular, you know, back in the 90s. And uh, I came into Islamic studies in the early 2000s. And I, you know, was surrounded by a lot of these kinds of the Gerald Hortings of yes. the world. And uh, I, I read, I think, Joseph Schacht's um, uh, origins probably in the year 2003 or something like that, so a long time ago. Um, <clears throat> I, it was quite a dense read at the time, so I don't, I don't claim to have read it sort of cover to cover very carefully, but I, I think I, I tried the best that I could under the circumstances. Yes, I, I, I think the publication of this book, and as with all the books I discussed, they're always building on previous developments in various ways. 
uh, and they, they represent a particular moment in, in scholarship. For me, this book is about, and there, there was a stage I feel uh, some years ago where it was felt that, well, you know, there, there's only so much more we can learn from this corpus and it's not very historical, many skeptical scholars would say. Mm. And, you know, either you accept the assumptions of uh, these scholars in credulous fashion or you're, you know, an absolute skeptic. And this really represents a transcending of this uh, supposed dichotomy. Uh, and in, in a sense, he's building on the work, most notably of Harold Motsky from the 90s and, you know, in translation. People like Harold, Harold Motsky, I mean, there's a lot of reference to the work of Gregor Sola, who's taught us so right. much about writing. Of course, even uh, scholars like Michael Cook with his famous article on opposition to writing. I mean, how is it that scholars go from, I mean, there is a well-known and widespread opposition to committing, say, hadith and religious learning or ilm. Yeah. To uh, to paper and in the form of publicly available documents, what exactly happens? Because it, it's a process that um, lasts some decades and then very quickly shifts towards the end of the first century and in, in the early second century uh, to a point where, although oral uh, the oral dimension of learning re retains prestige and it's important, something it continues to do today, of course. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, oral, <laughs> oral learning still has a function. I hope I'm not being mean and saying uh, the, the name Said ibn al-Musayyib is consistently transliterated as Musayyib. In, in this, so oral learning still has a function, right? It teaches you well. How to, I mean, that's not a, not a real criticism. It's a very trivial point, of course. Uh, but, you know, to this day, it still has, has its importance and its place. Um, so, I mean, it's, there are a lot of work of scholars being referenced I mean, uh, and, and the research and the, the primary sources is not surprisingly for Sean Anthony, because if, if you've read say, his book on crucifixion, you'll kind of be familiar with, with how he operates. Uh, but it's it's astounding in terms of its depth. Really, I mean, the, besides primary sources, I, I, hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't even heard of, which I feel rather for, bad for about. For example, sorry? And can you give an example? Uh, gosh. Uh, I mean, and, and, and the whole debates, I mean, the last chapter, uh, concerns to expose my ignorance concerns an issue. I mean, I hadn't even been aware that in, in the um, and just to give you a sense of the breadth as well within within the context of late antiquity, the venerable Bede in his Ecclesiastical History of the English People right. talks about a kind of um, uh, in Northumbria in the seventh century. Right. A crude kind of hermit figure called Cademon, uh, I think it's pronounced. And uh, so that chapter is about the striking parallels. And and and, and Bede is, is is his work is is uh, completed in the early eighth century. So he actually completes his work before Ibn Ashaq does it. Now, how on earth do you find you know how do you explain these striking parallels between the Prophet's uh, first encounter with Revelation Ali Salatussalam and I mean some many of the details are kind of strikingly similar of this uh, obscure figure, uh, Cademon, six thousand kilometers away, uh, you know, within a few decades of each other. I mean, how how can you explain that? But you know, I'd be been unaware of this debate. And he talks about uh, von von C and uh, and Sola and others who'd already already discussed the Stephen Shoemaker as well. Right. Uh, but that's 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 remarkable. So and and um, uh, I, 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 I just want to it, it has been discussed as far as I recall in secondary literature. Um, you know, yes, yes. Okay, okay. So I, I mentioned some, some examples. Yes. 
Uh, and uh, who's a shoemaker? I'm actually, pardon my ignorance, but uh, I'm not. I'm not familiar with. Yes, yeah, so Stephen Shoemaker is again someone who works on late antiquity, early Islam, who <laughs> definitely veers towards the very skeptical end of the spectrum. Right, right. Uh, I mean, a book of his has appeared recently, which we may have an episode on called "A Prophet Has Appeared," right. uh, and he kind of stresses the apocalyptic elements of the prophet's yeah. teaching in the early Muslim community. Uh, but it's kind of, I mean overlap in terms of the kinds of questions they're interested in. I mean, he's, he's also written about Kidman, of course. So, so, uh, so let me take this opportunity more skeptical, I would say. If, if, like, let me take this opportunity to think about skepticism a little with you. I just wanted to, I mean, um, a few years ago, I think this might have been around the 2012, 2011, hmm. um, Tom Holland did a documentary in the UK. So he, this is a, he's a classicist as far as I understand and a popular sort of yeah. historian. Um, you know, he's good uh, very, you know, well-read in classics and, um, you know, classical. Well, I mean, like all, all good journalists, he's a good communicator. Yes, uh, he's an excellent that's communicator. That's what journalists tend to do better than academics. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, that's why they go into that sort of line of work. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously it caused a bit of a stir at the time. Um, it actually uh, invoked uh, and interviewed, indeed, uh, one of my own teachers, Patricia Croner, um, who uh, sort of uh, was famous... Uh, along with another of my teachers, Michael Cook, uh, in the uh, sort of late 70s for having written Hagarism, which uh, it, it's fascinating reading some of the reviews that came out at the time about it. It was quite funny. Um, but uh, obviously, in a sense, there was this... Sort I of should say, I, I know a, a scholar who still remain unnamed who was around at the time, and he, he thought it was a, a joke, you know, in the well, same way... That uh, Finnegan's Wake was written as a kind of drunken boast about whether it could be published, <laughs> this kind of thing. So he, he, thought, he, he thought it was that. But time. I mean, like, uh, you know, others, great scholars, people like Van S and others have, have literally said that as well. And of course, um, both scholars. Uh, no, I think Van uh, criticism is much more tempered than that. I mean, Montgomery yes, Watts, I think, was. Was right and on the line. There was uh, RB Sargent's. Uh, RB Sargent basically described it as a leg pull, if I recall, or, or pure spoof. Now, mm. um, of course, both scholars. I mean, they they were young scholars at the time, probably in sort of our age at the time, uh, roughly. Um, That's and, depressing. And, Gosh, what what have we achieved? <laughs> like, but anyway, by well, <laughs> but at the same time, um, you know, neither scholar really sort of held to those uh, the thesis of that book in any sub substantive way towards the end of their life. And and your yeah, yeah. yeah, so just in terms of revisionism, and I, of course I want to get back to discussing the book as soon as possible. Yeah. Yes, it's true. I mean, in some sense, you could say that book Hagarism was, was something of a thought exercise. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's a charitable interpretation in the sense that what do we do if we discard all of the Muslim sources and read the Prophet's life and career and that the early Muslim community solely through non-Muslim sources. Right. Now, of course, in subsequent decades, many more, because it was published in 77, many more early non-Muslim sources have been discovered. I should say, uh, Anthony in the book uh, mentions many of them and discusses them, including, well, some of them featured already in Hagarism, uh, the, the Doctrina Yaakobi and, uh, and so on. Uh, but when you read these sources together, uh, as uh, Hoyland does in his book, Seeing Islam as Others Saw It, uh, 
it, you know, it, it really complements and enriches our understanding of the period. I mean, things have really moved on since the late 70s, I would hope. And, yeah. You know, you still have scholars who are extremely skeptical, but I think there is broad agreement now on at least, uh, you know, the, the basics of the Prophet's life, the fact that he lived in Western Arabia, the Quran represents uh, his teaching in some sense, uh, and, you know, the, 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 the basics of the narrative. And, and in the, the letters of Urwa ibn Zubair, I mean, you, you know, all of the major aspects of the seerah uh, we would recognize whether it's uh, the beginning of Revelation, of course, on which there are variant kind of transmissions, um, the, the the persecution of the early Muslim community in Mecca, the Hijrah, uh, you know, Badr, Uhud, Hudaybiyah, Fath Mecca, and all of these things. I mean, these are already present in, in the early strata of, uh, of the record. And effectively, uh, I mean, you, you can speak of Tawatur. This is more or less what Fred Donner says. Right, although he doesn't express it in those terms, really. Right. I mean, of course, he he also has his own sort of like very, uh, <laughs> some would say, somewhat yes. sort of like idiosyncratic take, shall we say? Yes. Um, and Krona has a good, a nice review. Of, well, not nice, yes, but in, in the tablet, good magazine, I believe. And the tablet that's right. Yes, it really works. That's reading. available online if if anyone is interested. So it's Patricia Krona. Krona reviewing Fred Donner's Muhammad and the Believers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I thought that was a great piece as well. Um, but I wanted to sort of come back to a comment that you made <coughs> earlier, which is, you know, you cannot push uh, something back into the lifetime of the prophet, but within sort of a generation or maybe a generation and a half. And so, you know, what's interesting to me, uh, those are comments that, you know, you, you read um, periodically in the secondary literature. I think, um, you know, Harold Motsky suggests that, no, actually, you know, considering you can, you know, take them within, uh, even within the lifetime of the Prophet, then there might be some of the material that you can push. I, 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 I don't recall him saying that, but I mean, this is just my, my repeating what Anthony says in the book and what you pick up from other scholars. What I really mean to say is for those early, I mean, and you know, if, if you have multiple snares leading you back to, I bear in mind 60 after the Hijrah as well within the lifetime of many of the many of the younger companions or certainly some of those who you know were born when the Prophet was still alive, alayhi uh, Just to give you context, I mean, according to the Muslim tradition, the, the last people who can legitimately claim to have been Sahaba die in the very early second century. Mm. Uh, few, few, few in number. Uh, or towards the end of the first, people like Anas bin Malik, who is a long-lived guy. Uh, yes, yeah, so 60 is, you know, in the lifetime of many of the companions. I mean, that's not, you know, you can say, yes, the tradition underwent certain changes then, and some people push this in, in quite a radical this is, this is where, I mean, that, that sort of language, um, I wonder, perhaps I've misunderstood it somewhat, but, um, you know, the assumption seems to be, well, you know, this can be pushed back that far, but it's completely discounting the fact that that person, you know, was alive <laughs> earlier. So, to speak. so, you know, yes, why, yeah. why are we taking the end date of that's, that as the limit of what? Because that's that's a function of the snared and the common link and all of this other hmm. other stuff. So, I'm one of the link, fair enough. You know, it comes at a later yeah. stage. The common link represents the point at which various people converge on this figure. 
and then uh -huh. they take the, the person dying at that point as that you know that's the the terminus ad quem so to speak um and so you know i think that makes sense but it, it does seem to yeah it just sounds a bit odd to me yeah i mean but uh you know ultimately your what you do i mean of course not not all scholars agree with that some like shoemaker would be more skeptical but sure a lot of the time and how you approach these sources to begin with is, is a function of you know methodological assumptions as nikolai sinai says in in uh, in a number of places including his uh really nice chapter in the um, Oxford Handbook of the Abrahamic Religions on the historical critical study of uh, the Abrahamic religions. Uh, you know, to some extent, I mean, uh, many of these things rest on axiomatic assumptions that cannot really be proven in any decisive way. So, for instance, um, yeah, I'm going to have the, to read Chapter yeah, and kind of, even I mean, Jonathan Brown has kind of discussed it in a yeah. very accessible way in his very, book on Hadith. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, like the Siravahazi corpus itself, I mean, the assumptions with which modern historians and the academic tradition, uh, you know, approach these sources, I mean, that also has a history. It's not descended from on high, it's not a kind of platonic form which uh, has been discovered. Uh, by by modern academicians, and, and this is one of the things um, which I find, uh, if if I may say so, um, you know, a little sort of like um, somewhat irritating because basically, you know, th there is a secular materialist understanding of how we approach history and so on, but that secular materialism has been deeply undermined by sort of various kinds of um, engagements uh, in. Uh, sort of epistemology and other aspects of philosophy that have shown that these are sort of uh, you know, you can think about people like Rorty, you can think about people like McIntyre and, and a whole host of other people who, who kind of demonstrate and illustrate, I think, the extent to which uh, our understandings of these sorts of things are so contingent as well. And yeah, so, I mean, yes. that's and, and there, there is complete recognition of that in, in Anthony's book, okay. in, in the sense that you, you can't be, I, in some sense, you know, what what something like uh, Brown's discussion of this the history of the historical critical method does is to parochialize what is what is really a, 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 a parochial tradition that succeeded in globalizing itself and spreading itself. Right. Uh, and I don't mean by virtue of colonialism in a nefarious sense that you know there was a, you know there were attempts to corrupt people's views of the world or have you, but you know it, it's well, just a fact that. People were convinced by what they were preaching, right? I mean, they, yeah. They I mean, but uh, but of course, the the night experience of the nineteenth century of the colonial encounter has really changed everything. I always tell my students, you know, even the way uh, Muslims and, and other non-Westerners, uh, not to put too fine a point on, on the, that binary, uh, how they eat, how they sleep, how they, you know, uh, dress. All of these things have been deeply impacted, and of course, systems of knowledge production and what counts as valid knowledge and does not. Is um, is an, uh, just one element of that ra ra uh, radical transformation. I mean, to, to Anthony's credit, I mean, he does uh, here and you know even in interviews of his I've listened to really does um, display a great deal of humility, uh, particularly when it comes to things like uh, you know the fact that Western scholars have mostly abandoned the ed editing of texts now. Right. Uh, so you know none of this work would even be possible without the scholarship of uh, of Muslims, 
Uh, you know, and, and most of the great majority of the text see or others read will be edited by I mean, the stereotype is like a, a talib alim, you know, they put them in a room, 20 of them and get them to type up the manuscript. But anyway, I mean, uh, so I mean, he, he recognizes this and that, that's certainly to his, his credit. Uh, but, you know, I, and he, he does actually have a comment about this. So he says it's a bit of a canard to suggest that uh, these new methodological developments will not impact uh, people or even their faith. I mean, he says in a fairly non-committal way that, of course, new, new understandings of the world always cause us to rethink our assumptions, right. including, you know, how exactly we approach this, this, uh, this Sira Maghazi corpus. So he kind of emerges as a, as a sympathetic and engaged and, 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 and very careful. In a sense, like you have an older generation of scholarship, and this is not only something that applies to the Islamic tradition, but other traditions as well. I think, um, you know, considering my own background, I think it's particularly problematic when it's applied to the Islamic tradition, which thinks in a sense that, oh, well, you know, religions are not going to collapse because, you know, they're critiqued in this way. Um, you know, they are, in a sense, uh, immune to evidence, so to speak. There's a kind of assumption there that, well, I mean, these people just have a leap of faith and they just, you know, that any any sort of like debunking of their religious traditions that we can come up with um, needn't sort of like uh, end their sort of commitment to that. And and this is this yes. is an interesting sort of take, obviously. Um, yes. It's very different to someone like Richard Dawkins, who is very frustrated with that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I probably want to draw uh the conversation away from even the mention of such name because this is this is a serious work of scholarship but of i will say that um i i think muslims should be open to uh as they are i mean they don't need my permission to do this exactly uh exploring um you know other methodologies of course muslims themselves historically have never agreed on these things yeah i mean a scholar like an nadam uh, who dies in the early third century is, uh, and he was living back then, is you know probably more skeptical of the Hadith corpus than than many uh, Western academicians today, right. uh, according to the, the views uh, attributed to him in various toxicographical sources. Sure. Uh, and you know you kind of find a whole spectrum, uh, right, of early Muslim views saying the first three centuries on on these issues, and I would say. Uh, uh, you know, with an awareness, of course, that of course there is a power dynamic. That's not something we can ignore. Of course, there is this history we, we must not neglect, but uh, we we should be open to engagement. Of course, on terms that you know on, uh, we feel we feel is suitable. But I, I learned a great deal from this book, and I'm sure other other readers would as well. Certainly, I mean, I'm I'm not sort of for a moment suggesting because my impression um, from a very superficial engagement with Sean Anthony's work is that he's very 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 careful scholar, very learned. Yes, scholar. careful and thorough, I think, are the two words that, that occur immediately. Yeah. I mean, I can I can give some examples. So I, I have already spoken for a while to summarize the book. But there are four uh, body chapters, the first two and the last two, that are, I mean, they're really like detective stories. So he's trying to give examples of how a careful lateral reading of late antique texts, so alongside the Quran you're reading, you know, a hagiography, saints lives produced by Christians and so on. Uh, and that really helps to shed light on it, um, on the Sira Mahazi corpus. Uh, so he, he talks in the first chapter, uh, first body chapter, I should say, because there is an introduction that talks about some of the important methodological elements right. I've, uh, I've mentioned. Um, he talks about 
this report, we find this very early text, which most scholars date to two years after the Prophet's death, so extremely early, the Doctrina Yaakobi. And uh, I mean, I need not go into it's, it's a fairly well-known text. I won't detain you with the details. But one of the points he mentions, the author, uh, although Anthony dates it to the 670s, I think, uh, is that the Prophet claims to possess the keys to paradise. So he kind of explores what this might mean. You know, he, I mean, the, the, again, the, the depth of the research is impressive. You know, he looks at patristic literature, what church fathers were writing and how they use this metaphor of the keys of paradise. He searches the Hadith corpus extensively. You know, we'll be familiar probably with Hadith suggesting that la ilaha illallah is the key to paradise or uh, swords, swords are the key to paradise and other things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so on. So the, the the chapters are a bit like that. To go back to the the story of um, uh, and Kaidmon, I've already described, uh, and he kind of suggests how exactly the venerable Bid might have been influenced by this, the early kind of circulation of the Sira Maghazi Corpus. So that's the first and the last uh, of the of the of the detective chapters, if you like, right. and. Um, then you have, I mean, some of the findings are really extraordinary. So the second to last chapter, as well as talking about, uh, you know, how the context of imperial rule uh, shapes the Sira Maghazi corpus's vision of history. Hmm. So Ibn Ishaq Sira, uh, you know, in its, its, its original form was a tripartite work that included a history like you would find in a Tabari, who preserves some of his reports, you're of the whole world from creation until the sending of the prophet and then the Maghazi of the prophet. Mm-hmm. And in one scholarly view, it even included the history of the, of the caliph. Some say that that was a separate work. But anyway, uh, that chapter looks at the, the famous story of the encounter you find in Sahih al-Bukhari between uh, Abu Sufyan and the emperor, emperor sorry, Heraclius. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the extraordinary thing is, Based on again, this, and this, this is how the practice of lateral reading is key, and how reading these texts alongside each other really sheds light on on the on the on the Sira Maghazi corpus. So he finds a source from the 660s, a chronicle attributed to Fredegar. Uh, so it's a Merovingian chronicle, very early. So you're talking again three three decades after the prophets. Uh, passing Ali um, and uh, you know we even have a, a manuscript that's been dated to the early 8th century. So very very early stuff, you know, long mm-hmm. predating Ibn Ishaq and his Sira project. Right. Uh, and uh, this also tells us that Her- Heraclius, um, by virtue of you know astrology and other prognosticatory <laughs> techniques, foresaw the dominion of the circumcised people. Right. In other words, the Arabs specifically. So, you know, you find this in a source already a few decades after the Prophet's death. So he then looks at the variant transmissions of this story. And uh, one of the kind of prominent roots of transmission is from uh, Ibn Shahab al-Zuhri. And he reports having taken it from uh, a mysterious figure called Ibn Natura, Natura. Uh, and with some philological detective work of the highest order, you know, and, uh, you know, there are many details I have to admit for the sake of brevity, uh, Anthony show, uh, shows that 
uh, you know, the source for this narrative would have been a some kind of church official, probably somebody uh, temporarily occupying the post of bishop and so on. So it's a very, very right. early, and of course, you know, what you then do with that story, does that mean that element of the story is historical or not? People will take in different in different right. directions. Right. So that's just a flavor of some of the, the kind of detective work going on in this book. And in a sense, I mean, obviously the, the version that's found in Bukhari is, you know, according to um, sort of, in terms of when it was put, set down in, in written form, much later, much, much later. Yes. So, of course, there, there are important divergences between these stories, sure. but they do share very crucial details, uh, I mean, really in, in the sense that Heraclius uh, knew of the coming of the dominion of the of the circumcised, right. and right. this had an impact on his policy. I mean, in 632, there was an attempt to force, forcibly convert uh, all Jews in, in the in the Byzantine Empire uh, to to Christianity. So, uh, you know, the the coming of the Muslims in, in some sense. And, and this would have been under Heraclius's uh, sort of rule. Or? Yes. So Heraclius's end comes to a, a reign comes to an end, I think at 640, if I'm not mistaken. I should mention, of course, uh, you know, it's a very, very learned and, and fascinating uh, kind of detective work, as I said. Um, uh, I'm not to say that Anthony uh, endorses the historicity of, of that story, uh, just he establishes that elements of it are very early, clearly. Right, right. Uh, or uh, circulated early, at least. Uh, I mean, there, there are sometimes uh, where I, I do not agree with sure. uh, particular things, so I, I should probably discuss that. This is uh, specifically the second chapter right. called Muhammad the Merchant. So we all know, you know, growing up as kids, that the Prophet was a uh, was a trader and he undertook uh, trade journeys, and he, at, at least at some point in his life, earned his living as a merchant. Right. Uh, and Anthony says that, well, actually, uh, although this is, of course, widely established uh, in, in the classical Sira literature, he says, well, if you look at the early Sira Maghazi literature, it's not actually clear that the, or it's not really mentioned the prophet earned his living as a merchant, but this is something that figures very early on, uh, even in non-Muslim sources. So he, sa he says it's historical, he says the prophet Isaac clearly worked as a merchant, but he says that actually, the early non-Muslim sources are more insistent on this point and do more to establish it than the early Sira Malazi corpus. Now, it's a kind of, on the face of it, a counterintuitive claim, and I had some serious problems with the, the details what, of the argument. What made, you, what made you question that? I mean, why would that be a... Because, I mean, one of the things that comes to mind is that uh, more discerning scholars of Sira, like uh, Dhahabi, for example, um, are quite happy to in a sense, impugn the, or question the authenticity of certain aspects of the Prophet's early life. Yes, that's uh, that's very good. In fact, he, I'm, I'm surprised because he, he talks about that. He's something I wasn't aware of. He, he rejects the, the story of Bahira, the encounter yes, of Bahira the monk. He, he, in, 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 he, in, in, I mean, it's that story, yeah. which is a shame because it's something we grew up with. But anyway. <laughs> no, but, I mean, but that's the thing. I mean, that's the difference between scholarship and, you know. Yes. <laughs> and of course, uh, so it's, it's great that, that Anthony kind of recognizes this, this critical element. I mean, he cites in his work quite a lot Dhabi and uh, Ibn Hajar on occasion, right. uh, but particularly works uh, figures like Dhabi. But anyway, in, in the footnotes. Um, 
He says, for instance, that yes, I, in the earliest strands of the Sira Maghazi corpus, clearly there is uh, the sense in which the Prophet did undertake trade journeys, but he says these were some of you know, the differences in the details, and only one or two journeys are well, trade journeys are well, uh, are attested to at all. Almost. Uh, but, you know, as he acknowledges in the book, and as is well known, uh, you know, that part of the Prophet's life, you know, any event pretty much you could say is not that well attested. I mean, the great majority of the Sira is about the, you know, what happens after the age of 40. Yeah. And also, you know, at what point does one become a trader? You know, is there, is there a required minimum of journeys right. one has right. to undertake? Right. Uh, so it's partly a problem of definition and you know, <laughs> is the complaint that we do not have a full itinerary of all the prophets' uh, trading journeys, which one would not expect for this early part of his life. Anyway, I mean, even with some of the specific details of the argument, and I, I can't go into, into too much detail, but yeah. so for instance, he says in a kind of throwaway sentence that I admit is not crucial to this argument, the Hadith corpus generally characterizes merchants in, in negative terms, merchants and trades. That's a bit of a, <laughs> that's a bit of a grand claim. Uh, of course, the, Sirak, the Hadith corpus is a, is a vast body of literature and contains kind of contradictory impulses. Uh, but on the whole, I would say the opposite is actually the case. And uh, he, he goes as far as saying, uh, page 67 or, yeah, I think it's 67, um, that, you know, in, in some uh, reports, the Prophet is even denied to have ever been a merchant at all. Uh, so I, I looked into these and he gives two sources, Kitab al-Zuhd of Imam Ahmed and the Kitab al-Kasb attributed to Muhammad ibn Hassan, which is clearly a later work, you know, not early than third century. Okay, and, you know, if you look at it, the, the source that's been cited here, the Kitab al-Kasb, which he recognizes is not authentic, but still interesting work. You know, the whole argument of that book... He recognized as inauthentic because... I mean, yeah, I mean, if you read it, he talks... You know, it's a ref it's like um, uh, a refutation of those who say you cannot earn a living and this goes against the yeah. So, And he even refers to the Sufis by name, so it can't be earlier than third century. But, you know, the whole argument of the book is you can earn a living by trade and, you know, it's, it doesn't go against Tawakul. And, you know, funnily enough, after he cites that, that report, which, uh, you know, is used by the opponents of pseudo-Muhammad ibn al-Hassan, like three pages later, he discusses reports where the Prophet buys and sells. Hmm. Um, now, the funny thing is, I do not even agree with that reading of the report. So, uh, and he's translated it in a particular way to suggest that, you know, uh, the, the kind of, uh, to, to uh, paraphrase, you know, I was not sent or I was, uh, you know, revelation was not given to me that I become a trader or a mass wealth. Words to this effect. Right, right. But I mean, if you, if you look at the Arabic, you know, if, when the Prophet says things like ma or and so on, this is not like a literal denial that those other things may have happened. Occasionally, it's right. the best way to translate this phrase, I was not sent for, except for the sake of, or for the sake of, it's not. Yeah. So, um, you know, Amr, Amr bin Abdulaziz has these uh, remarks attributed to him that uh, in very very versions that you know the prophet was sent as a hadian as a guide when not as yeah, tax yeah. collector is one version jabian and there are others including circumciser right. but you know this is not to deny that the prophet sent out tax collectors and indirectly commissioned the collection of taxes or that you know people well 
circumcision is a bit more complicated, but um, so I, I don't even agree with that that and, and that reading. And of course, but as uh, you say, know, in, in a sense, uh, the first instance was a throwaway comment. So. Yes. Yeah. yeah, but. Uh, the, the, the Kitab al-Zuhud of Imam Ahmed, I mean, Ahmed has a whole book I mean, from Al-Khalal and the Masail, Al-Hath ala tijara literally the first words of which attributed to Ahmed are Al-Zim al literally, you know. And why, why, why were the Ahl al-Hadith the proto-Sinis? Why were they insistent? Why were they actually pro-trade? So I completely disagree with that characterization. Because against the kind of Sufis and protos and other figures like this, because for them, as Ahmed says in, in that book of Al-Khalal, uh, you know, trade and earning a living meant independence from others. And it also meant you can kind of provide for your poorer relatives. So anyway, I mean, that's, right. uh, so there are some criticisms of points of detail there, but the idea that the Sira Maghazi, you know, does the corpus does not talk about the prophet as a merchant? You know, that's also something I have a problem with. But that's that's kind of just one example, and sure. you know, no, no of, error. of course, absolutely. I mean, uh, that's that's something that's that we something all recognize. That we but, uh, sorry, there's an echo again. Um, I wanted to take this as an opportunity also to um, field a couple of questions, and and a, oh. a couple have dropped in, but uh -huh. you know, I, I just um, I. I I think I uh, uh, I share your sort of enthusiasm for the book, even though I've not read it yet. So I look forward to reading it, um, you know, at some point in in the not too distant future when I'm feeling a bit better as well. <laughs> but um, uh, but thank you, Jazakumullah uh, Khairan for really a, a fascinating sort of overview. Um, yes, I mean, I wish I could have said more about the origins of the Sira Mahazi corpus in kind of court context. So mm. I mean, the, the caliphs uh, very, very briefly play a major role in overcoming the last or overcoming this opposition to the committing ilm to writing. Right. And the, the key figure who seems to be kind of historical in uh, in this, because it's attributed to many figures, uh, Amr bin Abdul Aziz is said to have commissioned Jam al-Ilm, right. uh, but uh, Hisham bin Abdul Malik basically uh, makes Ibn Shahab zuhri against his better inclinations. He effectively forces him to start writing it down. Right. Uh, and after that, the kind of uh, objections to this practice more or less fade away. Although, so, you know, this, yeah. So uh, Sean Anthony deals with this to a certain extent, you said? Oh, yes. Yeah. So he discusses and he discusses the stories about Amr bin Abdul Aziz briefly. And uh, Abdul Malik bin Marwan clearly played some kind of role because we have this correspondence with Hisham bin Urwa. Uh, and uh, but the key development happens in the time of, uh, or the reign, I should say, for Shem bin Abdul Malik, who, who's in right. power from 105 to 125. Ibn Shabazuri, again, one of the key figures in this, and Ibn Ishaq somewhat later, right, right. under the Abbasids. Yeah. Uh, okay, um, uh, Sheikh Nuralam, uh, an old friend, actually says, uh, uh, "Good to see you." So myself, because I haven't seen him for quite a few years. Uh, um, so we have a question from uh, Jan Islam, and uh -huh. I think this is, to a certain extent been covered. It might be over two sort of. Um, yeah, I mean, I can I can say a few words to this. So I'll, I'll just uh, read it out for, for the purposes, right, so. um, sort of, uh, because this is hopefully also something which should uh, eventually be converted into a podcast, so that 
to our <laughs> listeners on the recent method methodologies to scrutinize authenticity of hadith. How can we reconcile the continued, even if limited, Western skepticism with the Muslim insistence on the historical validity of humanity's most comprehensive and rigorous effort to document history? Yes, okay. Uh, so may, maybe there are some issues with the way the question is worded or framed. So, you know, I, I characterized uh, Anthony's book as post-revisionist, but that is by no means to suggest he validates, you know, all of the details of Ibn Ishaq is right. historically true. I mean, that's, you know, even perhaps before the, before the 19th century or even into the 19th century, or even in the twentieth, to some extent. I mean, Montgomery Watts. But even zero miracles, right? I mean. <laughs> yes, I mean. So you know, there are fundamental methodological differences. I think that can you know, at some level, there can be cannot uh, the assumptions cannot be reconciled. Uh, I mean, also, uh, you know, just last week we were talking about um, the Kitab al-Makhalat of Abu al Jabain. I mentioned the Kitab al-Harish. I mean, Muslims themselves, from the very beginning, have entertained diverse views. Right. on the value and historicity of this material. Uh, there's, said, there's something to be said about the sort of, um, I mean, a lot of those diverse views are mutually irre irreconcilable and some of them have been, uh, say for example, my own sort of background within uh, Sunni thinking, for example, would look at someone like Abu Ali al-Jubai and say, well, that's a nice view of yours. I don't accept it, right? And <laughs> <laughs> but, but nonetheless, it demonstrates the fact that Muslims have diverse. And and moreover, that it took, I mean, uh, you know, time for these views to become canonical, as it were. Sure, sure. And there was a process of contestation that never entirely disappears throughout the long history. And I, th I think my my concern, the reason I'm kind of uh, offering something of a counterpoint to the, the way in which you're framing this is that I think um, I think it's very true that obviously these sorts of things go through contestation. Um, but the sort of contestation that is being, in a sense, presented as um, sort of, uh, you know, within, within scholarship, uh, which is coming from a secular materialist perspective as being sort of um, appropriate uh, is obviously quite different from the way in which you know of Muslim course and uh, you know i wouldn't suggest in any way those yeah two one of the i would hope i mean i think um scholars like uh, sean anthony and and of course the the giants who they are building on from previous generations including the figures like Schacht and even someone like wandsborough to a certain extent um you know the the contributions they've made i think are very important but they are all within a certain sort of um uh, universe of assumptions and yes, I think there's a there's this space to be created where a different universe of assumptions, um, you know, which aren't necessarily secular materialist within Western Islamic studies starts to flower. And I think yes, I, and, and we're, we're very fortunate to live in such a space and such a time. Absolutely. And, and you know, yes, uh, in the UK and of course elsewhere. I mean, I've seen work by Awaymer Andam on, on, on the early period and how we can benefit from and be enriched by this scholarship that I hope he'll publish soon, like really groundbreaking stuff. Uh, there are of course many, many names we can we can think of, including of course Jonathan Brown, Wagner Hadith and Sira, and then many other names. So it is a very promising time and that you know that's that note of optimism and promise I think we we, we share with Sean Anthony in his book. 
I was just going to say that uh, for those who are interested, we've mentioned Jonathan Brown's <coughs> sort of contribution in this uh, a couple of times, but I think he's written a very accessible chapter specifically on sort of uh, the European higher criticism. And um, it's in his book, Hadith Muhammad's Legacy in the Medieval and Modern World. Yes, so absolutely go, go away and read that. And it will give you a sense that, you know, uh, I mean, like any other tradition of scholarship uh, in the Western one emerges from a particular place. It is a tradition. It has a history uh, that can and be deconstructed. Uh, sorry, I'm sort of struggling to talk a little <laughs> as well because of my cough, but what I particularly liked uh, about the way in which you presented um, Sean Anthony's work, and as I say, you know, I'm, my exposure to it is through your presentation, but what I've liked about the book as you've you know, presented it is this sort of very thoughtful, nuanced um, recognition of the diversity of the audience as well, that, um, you yeah. know, those assumptions that uh, my own teachers, uh, Cook and Croner, could write within the 1970s, you know, rather brash fashion, you know, that... Um, yeah, so Hegelism and by infidels, for infidels. I mean, the academy has expected that to be read. They would not have expected that to be read in, in the kind of... Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, many of these assumptions that were taken for granted about the academy and the nature of the academic space in Islamic studies contexts you know, the, these assumptions no longer hold true. So if you're a scholar with a Muslim or non-Muslim uh, writing on the Sira, for instance, you know, you can, you can, or, or Islamic law or any other field, you know, you will have Muslim colleagues. Uh, and uh, hopefully at least you'll have Muslim friends. Uh, so, you know, the previous generations of scholars had to a great extent, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be completely unfair over generalized, but, you know, the, the Islamic tradition and the Islamic religious, uh, you know, literature was treated as a kind of dead tradition. Arabic texts were approached in the same way as Latin and Greek texts. You know, these are, this is a dead civilization that we can, uh, you know, uh, interact with without engaging with its practitioners. One anecdote I will mention in this respect, I will not <laughs> mention the name of the scholar, but one very famous German Orientalist who passed away some some decades ago. Really good work, actually. The limit of their engagement with the Muslim world was, and I was told this by a reliable, you know, just one, one link in my isn't as it were. Um, literally their only engagement with the Muslim world and living Muslims. Uh, was their cruise ship. They were on, I think, a Mediterranean <laughs> cruise. <laughs> and their cruise ship broke down and stopped in Morocco, uh, in one of these Moroccan port cities. So they got down and walked around and then boarded the ship again. I, I, I'm not talking about a figure from the 18th century. I mean, this was a scholar who was prolific, and uh, especially in the 1960s and 1970s and, and so on. And that's not far away from us. But now, of course, the world of scholarship has, uh, has changed uh, irre irreversibly and uh, uh, partly a function of the fact that just the, this field is so much larger than it was even 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, the publications, even in a particular subdiscipline, one human being cannot keep up with uh, easily. Right. And uh, in the UK context in particular, and in the United States and continental Europe to a lesser extent, uh, this has been Partly because of you know the uh, 
the, the, the inverse of the empire strikes back, the colonized <laughs> strike back. And um, yeah, I mean, some, some people feel threatened by the fact that Muslims are entering Islamic studies in large areas, but of course it will change. Actually, most people um, are very, I think, uh, welcoming of the... I agree, yes. Yeah. I do I mean, there is only Islamic phobic uh, prejudice in the academy, but it's, you know, I think um, these multiple perspectives uh, do enrich, enrich uh, academic work. I mean, in many contexts, it's just a demographic fact. I mean, in the UK, uh, many senior academics have told me probably most Islamists will be of Muslim background in the, you know, 10 years from now or 20 years from now. But, uh, but yes, yeah, I, I think you can... Even scholars, who, scholars are, who are, I'm just thinking, I'm just my, 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 echoing. I'm going to not, I, I was just going to say, okay, thank <laughs> you. Um, even, even scholars who are sort of, um, you know, not terribly enthusiastic about this shift in my experience, um, you know, overwhelmingly they, they are themselves teaching this new generation of scholars and, and they have, yeah. And very deep relationships with them and and recognize look you know i don't share your assumptions but yes. i think you're good for the field um, yes. <laughs> you're not going to explore the sorts of things that i would personally be interested in or in yes and so i think or you may do it in a different way or something and, and like there's organic growth and and i think that's a wonderful thing and i think yes and uh, you know neither of us will, will mention names we know many but yeah. those scholars themselves are transformed by this by this uh, engagement Absolutely, and, and, and I'm a product of that tradition as well as the Islamic tradition of, you know, yeah. the Darulums of the Indian subcontinent, right? So yes. I think, I think uh, we're, we're all sort of um, indebted to uh, various traditions of, of thought yes. and practice. Yes, and we have these complex formations and personal trajectories. And I should uh, probably apologize to, <laughs> to John Anthony for uh, using his book to, as a peg to hang all of these other discussions on, but it is a wonderful book, and I, I do, you know, I don't agree with everything, but I do really commend it to the audience. It's very beautifully written uh, as well, very accessible and a fun read. Really, you can read it on a train journey, although you shouldn't be uh, on on train journeys because of COVID, of course. <laughs> unless when you can do train journeys, but until then, order it and read yes. it. <laughs> until then, you can read it from from home or something. Inshallah. All right. Yes. Well, Jazakumullah khairan, Omar, and thank you, uh, Jan Islam, very kindly saying, I wish I could like this video many more times. Thank That's you very, very sweet much. You. And, uh, you know, as as we say, um, we have this as a weekly event. So, Omar, inshallah, will have another another actually book on the Prophet Muhammad sallam, again next week from a very yes. different angle, I assume. Yes. Well, um, this one focuses, uh, I should announce it, this is Michael Muhammad Knight's book. Uh, University of North Carolina Press right. uh, came out uh, just in June, I believe. Muhammad's Body, Baraka Networks, and the Prophetic Assemblage. It's a um, theoretically sophisticated take, not so much on the Sira Mughazi corpus, but more right. focused on, on the Hadith, right. uh, Sunni and Shia Hadith corpus, and how the, the Prophet's body and the, the kind of properties of this body and its various you know, fluids like saliva, for instance, how these are portrayed in the Hadith corpus, right. shifting portrayal. I know, and he looks at, at early texts and, and later texts. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, from the very early stuff, like yeah, Ibn Sa'ad yeah. and so on, to, um, 
I think the the sort of terminus ad quem, as it were, is Khatib al-Baghdadi's Tarikh Medina al-Salam. So, you know, you've got a slice of about, uh, you know, roughly speaking, three centuries of, of hadith. And of course, he brings in other, other discussions as well. It's a very original and fascinating book. No, <coughs> looking forward to it. <coughs> inshallah, I hope by that point my cough is gone, inshallah. Um, and Jazakallah uh, again, Omar, for a wonderful session. And thank you, everyone who watched. And uh, inshallah, thank you if you're watching the replay as well. Um, thank you in advance. And we look forward to welcoming you in a week's time, inshallah. Yes, yeah, and do please stay safe, stay safe. and adhere to government guidelines on <laughs> social distancing. Inshallah. Fiyamayla. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.